Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the Aurelius podcast. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder and CEO here at Aurelius and your host for the show. Our guest for this episode is Jorge Arango, an information architect, author, and designer. Jorge most recently authored the book, Living in Information, which is about how physical architecture and places are both different and similar to the information spaces we live in today. Jorge and I talked about his book and a lot of the concepts within it. Jorge has a formal background in architecture, which was an inspiration for him in writing the book. I was sure to ask him some questions about the similarities and differences between physical architecture and the digital design work we do today. And while there's certainly parallels in process and concepts, there's a lot different between the two and so much we can learn from that. Very interesting stuff indeed. As a result of that conversation, we naturally went to the topic of design ethics. This is a big deal for Jorge and myself as well. Jorge shared some very important warnings and timeless wisdom for how to create more mindful and ethical design choices in your everyday work. We talked about how so much of the discussion and civic discourse we have is online and that it's so important that the people building those digital spaces are using that power and responsibility with great care. And hey, I just want to mention really quickly that if you are a designer, researcher, or product leader looking for a way to store all of your user research key insights or nuggets, maybe to build a research repository or database, you should check out what we're doing with Aurelius. We help design and product teams add, tag, organize, and search all of their user research in one place to save time and effort in bringing their research insights into everyday decisions. You can check it out for a 14-day free trial over at our website, aureliuslab.com. That is www.aureliuslab.com. All right, let's get started with Jorge Arango. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, episode 29 with Jorge Arango. He's an independent information architect and strategic designer. He's also an author of a few books, including most recently, Living in Information. Jorge, welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. We're happy to have you here. Um, you know, I, I will have told folks a little bit prior to the intro to the episode about our conversation and a little bit of your background. But for, for those listening to the episode today uh, who, who maybe don't know about you and your work, can you give us a little bit of background of some things you've been working on? In, in, what you're passionate about. Sure. So the thing to know about me is that my background is in architecture, as in the design of buildings. Mm -hmm. And I uh, have nevertheless been doing what we now call user experience design um, in one form or another for the past 25 years or so. I um, left my career as an architect after about a year um, about a year after graduation, um, I think much to the uh, horror of my parents, <laughs> <laughs> because the the web happened, and I saw the web and had a uh, soul falling off his horse uh, on the road to Damascus moment. <laughs> I, I somehow saw that uh, this medium was going to change the world, and uh, and that I wanted to be a part of it. So I um, I started a basically a web design consultancy. Um, which ended up being the first in my part of the world. I'm, I'm originally from Panama in Central America. And uh, my first client was the first ISP in the country. Um, oh, wow. So it was uh, an exciting time, and I have been doing it ever since. My, um, I, I started in with um, telling you about my background in architecture because that has informed much of my career and the way that I approach the design of um, things like websites and apps and, and software in general. Mm -hmm. I, I bring an architectural lens to this practice. That's, that's really, really fascinating. I mean, uh, many parts of your background, but uh, uh, that was something I did not actually know about you, Jorge, that you had uh, a formal professional background in physical architecture. Yes, that's right. Um, I when uh, when I was studying in university, which was in the late 80s, 
um, you couldn't really go, well, there, there wasn't a web to begin with. Um, and uh, although we had, um, obviously we had computer technology, but uh, it wasn't as widespread as it is today. And um, there wasn't such a thing as, as UX and there were no university programs teaching this sort of thing. I mean, there, there were a few programs teaching things like, pardon me, human computer interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, interaction design in the, in the sense that we understand it today was something that you couldn't go to school to, to study. I suspect that if, if something like that had been around, I would have, um, I would have gravitated towards that because I got into computers very early on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But in retrospect, um, going to architecture school was the perfect training for someone who does the sort of work that I do. Uh, architecture is a design discipline first and foremost, but it's a design discipline that brings together um, a variety of different perspectives and um, beyond things like um, aesthetics and um, and um, engineering and human factors and history. And it just combines the whole of them into a, a, a very kind of systems-oriented approach to making a place that, that works at various levels. Uh, you know, it, it works in the level of, uh, of inhabitation and, you know, c- giving us a roof, giving us walls to protect us from the elements. That's, that's like the most basic level, but it also works uh, experientially, like we, you know, we design places to 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 elicit particular effects uh, and experiences, and that's something that we are doing today with software. And um, like I said, I think it's the perfect background for this sort of work. Yeah, even just as you describe that and your background there, and, and some of your applied experience, I can I can start to see the parallels between those, and I would love to dive into them. Even before we do, though. Uh, I'll just simply add something uh, Something else I learned about Jorge as we were chatting before we started the episode is that he never swears. So in this episode, um, he's either going to keep me honest or I'm going to drag him down. And I hope I hope uh, <laughs> I hope I hope the better of the situation comes out. I, I do swear, but I don't. Uh, OK, so it's it's good that you bring this up, actually, because it it's an opportunity for me to talk about the other passion, which is language mm-hmm. and language. In a way, what I do is I, I make I make architectures out of language, and the thing with swearing is that when you utter a swear word, you are using a very powerful construct to elicit an effect. Right? Uh, you do it to uh, you know because you're pissed off, or you do it because you're surprised, or you do it because you want to achieve some kind of effect. And the thing with swearing is that if if you do it all the time, it loses its potency. You know, there, there are people who drop F-bombs casually in conversation, and it becomes kind of an affectation, a part of their personality. And that's perfectly fine. I don't pass judgment on that. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it essentially defangs those words. It, it makes it so that they lose their potency because all of, all of a sudden they're like a tick. Mm-hmm. And they're no longer, uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of like a, an an incantation that has lost its power somehow. Yeah, that I I have a lot of respect for that, and and I that makes a ton of sense. In fact, I remember reading an article one time. Um, this is very loosely related, but I think still very relevant, and particularly to your to your point, is that uh, some folks in in parenting and child rearing. Uh, they actually make it a point to to swear not casually but freely around their their growing children, where normally we would think that's a taboo thing. But the reason they do it uh, is actually to teach that reverence. Is to te- is almost to teach exactly what you're what you're suggesting is there's a time and a place for this to be used, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and to learn that rather than just learn it's no 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 it's bad, uh, but rather no you you can and 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 you're perfectly free to use it, but but understand the, the right application. I think that that's, uh, I think that's poignant. Yeah. What was this, uh, in the Harry Potter books, there was all these spells, right? Expelliarmus or mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't want to be tossing those things around casually. Uh, 
they're powerful and um, used well, they can um, they can move people. That's I, I I appreciate that very much. And in fact, uh, Jorge, I think you would be a, a strong role model for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's bring it back to as we were talking about your background in architecture. This is fascinating and. I don't think this is the first time we've heard this, right? Like there are certainly other people like you who have a background in some some physical architecture and certainly have moved into, you know, IA and this more strategic type design. But if somebody were to ask you, you know, what is the most directly applied thing, you know, you learned and practiced in actual architecture that you use most frequently, say, you know, today in what we might call UX design or this strategic design? Sure. Um, the most directly applicable thing is thinking at a different level of abstraction about the problem. Mm. So um, when you're designing a building, you don't start by drawing the facade or the plans or whatever. You have to first think about what that building is for, what it's going to do, and you have to figure out what kind of spaces are going to serve that program. And the way that architects do this is they start sketching out kind of abstract representations of the spaces that will compose the environment and their relationships between them uh, so, they, so that they can figure out things like relative sizes and uh, relative locations, how people will move from one place to another. The relationship between those um, constructs and the context that they're going to be sitting in. For example, uh, you may be uh, dealing with a lot that has a very beautiful view uh, in one direction, and that's going to influence the placement of certain uh, functions within the building. Um, so uh, this idea that you start work at a, at, a, at a higher level of abstraction and then move uh, progressively towards more tangible expressions is something that um, that uh, is central to architecture, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly the, the aspect of it that's been the most influential to me. Um, when I think about a UX problem, let's say, uh, I'm thinking about what the parts of that environment are going to be and how people are going to move between one and the other and uh, how the the set of those components creates a particular context that influences how they how they come to it and how they think about it yeah this is awesome this is this is really really awesome detail around this and i i i love that you have this other background that's that's so um you know relevant and applicable to the work that you're doing now uh, again but also you know many of us in this field um you know, I think this is more of a curious question for me. Do you believe that those of us who do, you know, UX design or strategic type design, would it go, would it go the other way? Would it apply, say, if I'm a great uh, UX strategy person, would I also then be naturally inclined to be a good architect? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that when it comes to... Uh, the actual manifestation of these things as tangible artifacts that we can interact with, you start getting into very specific constraints that you need to understand, which are specific to each field, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, the reason that I can make the transition from architecture to, or that I was able to make the transition from architecture to uh, basically designing software relatively painlessly is that I was actually designing software before I got into architecture and I understood the constraints of that, of that environment. Mm -hmm. um, now the, the web was different than uh, things like making games in, in, in basic and stuff like that, which is what I was doing before, you know, as, as a kind mm -hmm. of hobby mm -hmm. when, when, before going to university. But, uh, but uh, still, this principle that you're interacting with elements in a two-dimensional plane that is before you somehow, and you're doing it indirectly by manipulating um, some kind of control, uh, that's a very different um, way of interacting with something than uh, a building, which is an environment that you physically step into. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and buildings have uh, all sorts of interesting physical constraints as well. You know, you have to understand for example, how different materials um, 
how different materials function at a very basic kind of physical level. You know, some materials work best in tension, some materials work best in compression, some materials are better for certain things than others. Uh, that uh, understanding what the toolbox, what the, the palette is that is available to you is something that I think is specific to each field. So once you move away from abstraction and start talking about actual implementation and making things tangible and, and real, um, it becomes more kind of field specific. Mm. Uh, so I, I would think that making the transition from UX design to architecture would require, you know, really grokking how the materials work and how they relate to each other. Yeah, that makes, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Okay, so all of this brings me to, you know, we started um, by, by mentioning that you have a recently released book, Living in Information. And even as the title suggests, it sounds to me like you are, are drawing parallels there between actual physical spaces and the world of information we now almost viscerally live in. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the gist of, of the book is that we have been interacting with each other. Um, we're, we're, you know, people are social, be social animals, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we're a social species and we have been interacting with each other for a long time and buildings and um, cities uh, designed built environments are have been the context in which those interactions have happened for a long time this is another by the way this is another thing that i love about architecture and that i try to bring to my work this idea that there is a typology to a bank for example if, if you're going to be designing a bank like talking about a physical bank like a bank branch mm -hmm. you're not starting from scratch there are templates because we've been building and using banks for a long time. There's a history of designing places to be banks. And as an architect, you can um, consult that history and any intervention you, you make is going to stand in relation to that history. And it's going to either reject it or it's going to embrace it and extend it somehow. And we, uh, we do the same when we're designing software. Um, if you're designing uh, an online banking system, uh, we're not starting from scratch. There have been many online banking systems designed at this point. People are, are to a greater or lesser degree, used to using things like this. Mm -hmm. And um, they bring expectations to that thing, right? So anyways, that, that, uh, I feel like I'm doing a long parenthesis there. But the, the point of the book, the, really the, the primary driving argument here is that these places that we have been interacting um, in as a species for a long time and which have served as our, um, our context are um, being, um, I'll use the word supplanted because I think it is happening. They're being supplanted by a different type of environment. Um, I'll give you a very concrete example. Okay. And, and it's an environment made of information. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, I'll give you a very concrete example. Before we started the interview and you were telling me about um, the conversation we were going to be having, you said, well, let's try to have a conversation that, uh, that is like a conversation we would have if we met at a conference. And um, that it, meeting in a physical place, like a, like a conference or a, a bar or something like that, is the way that people have been meeting for most of our history. Uh, it's only been over the last uh, 100 and what, 50, 60 years? When, when was the telegraph? Uh, it's, oh, it's geez, only been, right? So it's, it's only been fairly recently for us that we've had other ways of meeting. And right now you and I are talking um, in an environment that is uh, at some level not real, not real in the same way that a bar is real, right? Like you and I are not in the same room. We are not, um, I can't see you right now. Mm -hmm. uh, yet we are having a, a perfectly good and hopefully useful conversation. And we are in a sense inhabiting uh, an environment that we have instantiated um, to allow this conversation to happen. Um, 
Now, because we're using voice to do this, it's uh, it, it it feels a little trivial, and and I say that because we've had the telephone for a long time, right? Sure. So it it feels like it's not something new, but uh, consider something like uh, Wikipedia. So Wikipedia, I think most people think of Wikipedia as a, an encyclopedia, a publication, a sort of book, right? That just happens to be very very big. Sure, makes and, sense. Right, uh, and that somehow changes very fast, and it certainly is that. I mean, it's it's an enormous uh, it's an enormous book in in a sense. Um, if you try to print it out, it would be really really big, and it would be out of date by the time the <laughs> the printer finished. Right, right. Uh, and there's actually someone who's who's done this. Uh, it, it's I believe it's cited in the book. If I recall correctly, but uh, but the interesting thing to me about Wikipedia is that beyond being this big encyclopedia, Wikipedia is also the place where that encyclopedia is written. You would not be able to get Wikipedia done by sitting a bunch of people together in an environment mm-hmm. and having them kind of go at it with typewriters. It wouldn't happen. It's uh, um, uh, the economics wouldn't work. The um, the they would not be able to communicate efficiently enough. They would not be able to do their research well. Uh, they would not have the right environment to do that. So Wikipedia, beyond being a publication, Wikipedia is a place that allows Wikipedia to be written. Hmm. It's so it's a kind of environment, and uh, and it's been designed to enable a particular way of working. And uh, and it does it does work. I mean, there are problems with it. Uh, you know, there people complain about certain biases and uh, the the mix of editors in it, and and all those things are true. But it's also true that it's a remarkable thing mm-hmm. that would not have been able to be produced otherwise. Yeah. So this is this is fascinating, and and the Wikipedia example you give, I think, is uh, well. First of all, it's brilliant because it's very relatable. It, I doubt that anybody listening here has not Googled or searched for something and come up with a Wikipedia article in which they accept it as, as relative fact or truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is curious because if I'm, if I'm taking away uh, the high points of everything that you're saying, Jorge, is that Wikipedia, uh, the creation of that place basically allows for it, allows for its own existence in many ways. So while, you know, you've said it certainly was designed that way, it almost sounds to me like you're suggesting um, there were many things about Wikipedia and how it has become that were never intentionally designed, but because the the creation of the place, um, it enabled this, this exploration and this growth or evolution into something else that maybe we could not have anticipated. Yeah, it's uh, it's what I it's an example of what I call a generative environment, right? It's an environment that uh, allows uh, new things to emerge, including itself. Wikipedia keeps uh, evolving, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and I don't I don't know the the details uh, intimately because I have not um, in a long time. I I haven't gone in and and messed with it uh, in the back end, but uh, but I know that. Um, They've ha- they've evolved the 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 infrastructure to manage things like uh, pages that are frequently vandalized. Okay. Um, so, for example, uh, the uh, I think the the page for the current uh, president of the United States, whoever it is, is a page that is uh, target uh, to modification. I say whoever it is because I think that's been true for a while. I remember. Uh, uh, at least since the time of the second President Bush, um, seeing that the the Wikipedia page would have for the president would have to go into lockdown because mm. people would vandalize it, right? So uh, my understanding is that initially um, it was more uh, kind of free form and open ended than it is today. Today there are certain pages that are marked as uh, as uh, requiring uh, different uh, levels of editing in order to to make changes to them because of this of this issue. So the point is, it's it's an environment that keeps evolving, and it keeps evolving in response to how people are using it. Mm-hmm. So it's a um, 
it's a system, you know, and it's a system with feedback mechanisms, and it responds to what um, what is happening in it, and it has uh, processes to deal with change, which is very important because everything is constantly changing, and you have to uh, you have to work with change. You have to make change your friend. Mm-hmm. So okay, so this is interesting, and and the first question that comes to my mind, and I'm asking out of my own curiosity, but also because I think other people would have this question, right? We're sitting here describing Wikipedia as this place that has feedback mechanisms that feed itself into evolving and changing into what it should be, or 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 just simply the changes that, that will be. The question I have is, should all of our work be that? Uh, should everything we create in this digital world or you know, now that we're living in information, as the title of your book suggests, should all places be that way? Uh, yes, some to a greater degree than others, right? Okay. So um, one of the differences between software and physical structures is that physical st structures change much slower than software. Sure. The example I always point to is when iOS 7 came out, the, the seventh version of the iPhone operating system. iOS 7 was a, a pretty major redesign of the front end of the operating system. It introduces a kind of flapped UI that, uh, that uh, we kind of take for granted now, but at the time it seemed very uh, different. And that change happened literally overnight. And because um, iOS has such fast adoption rates, it changed how a lot of people interact with their devices, th their mobile devices, which for many people is a primary, if not the primary uh, device with which they uh, interact with information. Uh, it changed it literally overnight, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden you have this environment that uh, where the underlying operating system looked one way and a lot of the apps running on it looked a different way and uh, for a while there it was uh, a little bit of a, 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 a mashup of, of different styles but the point is that change happened very very quickly and we don't experience change that quickly in our buildings you know um, I've been living uh, here in Northern California now for almost four years and um, <clears throat> There's a library near my house that I love to spend time in. That building has had a few minor changes in the last four years that I've been visiting it. Um, they've uh, changed the furniture mostly. Uh, and obviously the books change uh, a lot in it. Uh, but it certainly hasn't changed as radically and as quickly as iOS 7. Uh, changed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, so these things, so the, so change is something that happens very, very fast and very frequently in software, much more frequently than in buildings. And we have to design for change. We have to design for uh, the the long term, basically. Interesting. So, is it is it that you're suggesting uh, change is something we should embrace, but in a more gradual and measured fashion as opposed to the you know the ios example you gave where all of a sudden um you know we flick the we flick the switch and uh it's a whole new world the next day yeah change is something that to your point we must embrace for sure we must understand how environments change they don't all change at the same um they don't change at the same speed or pace. There's a there's a concept that um, comes from the world of architecture, but uh, was popularized by Stuart Brand. Um, uh, this idea of uh, pace layers, where some aspects uh, he he originally wrote about it in the context of of architecture. He said that uh, buildings are composed of elements that change at different rates, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the site the building is built upon changes much much more slowly than things like the furniture that is in the building right and yeah. and i think that that's something that we understand and if you're going to make an intervention in a building you would be better served by 
altering the parts of the building that uh, that can change faster. So you don't mess around with the structure because the building might collapse, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you, so you want to be conscious about those layers and how they change. And we who are designing uh, experiences, especially software-based experiences, are also dealing with environments that change at different rates, uh, that are composed of things that change at different rates. When iOS 7 launched, uh, the, the, that change was a change to the user interface of the operating system. And sure, there were some changes also to, uh, to how you interact with it, but, but primarily it was the thing that, that was so shocking about it was a kind of um, change to the visual, the formal layer of, of, that, uh, of that environment. Structurally, iOS 7 was very similar to preceding uh, uh, operating systems, uh, iOS operating systems, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you, you still have this concept of apps that live in a home screen. You still tapped on them to, um, to enter the space of an app. Those things didn't change about it, right? So the, the change that we experienced there was kind of a cosmetic change. And one of the things that, uh, that I'm saying in this book is I'm, I'm trying to make a mapping between the, you know, the pace layers, how they change in architecture to the work that we're doing and saying, you know, let's embrace this idea that the cosmetic aspects of the environment can change more quickly than the structural aspects. And then uh, let's be more thoughtful about the, what we're doing structurally because these things tend to stick around longer. Okay, this is so this is we're getting into some pretty good stuff now. Um, just to reiterate what you said, embrace the fact that the cosmetics or visual or aesthetic layer of the things we work on can and perhaps should change more frequently. But being mindful of when and if we make suggestions to change things structurally in our products, meaning the underlying technology, the way information is perhaps organized and even served up. Yeah, the way that you have um, divided up your environment. So whenever we, again, let's, let's go back to thinking about buildings. So I am speaking to you from a little home office that I have in my house, right? I have set aside this space to do my work. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not the same space as our living room or our kitchen. Those are different environments in my home. and we have created, uh, very consciously created distinctions between these environments so that we can use them for their purposes, right? Right. So, so my home office is a quiet space. It's kind of in the back of the house, facing away from the street. I have my working tools laid out around me, right? So this is uh, in distinction to uh, our living room or our bedroom, which have different purposes. Whenever you design an information environment, an, an information environment, uh, I'm referring to things like, you know, the Wikipedia or uh, the Aurelius app, you know, the, the, the system that you all have designed, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are environments. And for people to be able to use them, we have to create distinctions between different parts of the environment where people are going to do different things. In a, and in a very similar way that they do in buildings. Um, the way that we create distinctions in these software-based experiences, though, is through language, which is why I was saying that that's uh, another one of my passions, right? This uh -huh. idea that when you have a navigation bar, for example, that tells you, that's like a, a guide to the different subdivisions of that environment, the places within that environment where you can go to do different things. And when designed thoughtfully, these uh, parts of the environment all function together to help you achieve your goals. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, these are, these are different pages of our app. These are different rooms of our house. And this is for those of us who have, uh, who've been along, around for a while and maybe have a, a gray hair or two, uh, we've, all, we've all used this analogy, right? Like yep. uh, architecture and interaction design is drawing the blueprints of the house before we decide, uh, you know, what, what color tile we're going to put in the bathroom sort of thing yeah and think think about the language that we that we've used right uh, and it's it's weird because it is a new thing right and whenever we are faced with a new thing we struggle and we we try to we try to do the best we can to uh to talk about it right but the the early days we talked about having a, a home page right yeah uh, 
which is, if you think about that phrase, homepage, that's a weird thing. It's mixing two metaphors. On the one hand, there's a spatial metaphor, home, right? Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, there's a publication metaphor. It's a page somehow. So it's it's kind of acknowledging that there's this weird thing we're dealing with, with it, which is kind of spatial, but it's also kind of like a publication because it's made up mostly of text and images. Yeah. Um, so we our language kind of uh, kind of reveals that we have been thinking about these things spatially. We talk about, for example, uh, we have a back button in our browsers, which lets us go back. And we we talk about navigation, right? Like we experience these things as somehow going from one part of the environment to another. Uh, and I don't think the analogy is perfect. It breaks down in many ways. Um, but I do think that uh, there's something there if we've kind of uh, instinctively gravitated towards using spatial language when talking about them. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is a very fascinating exploration into the intricacy of the language you use that is, has just been adopted as canon, right, for the work that we do. Uh, and those two things that you mentioned, like homepage and navigation. So those, yep. those things combined for me is to suggest, well, you know, we are suggesting there is a home spot and that you are to navigate to somewhere else. Well, so then, again, if we're gonna if we're gonna actually examine the language there, that means what? Like you need a map, you need an indication of the right place to go. You need to know a, a destination from home, right? Like that's just a very interesting yeah. and fascinating uh, several well, steps I, I, deeper to, to think about this. And many of the larger uh, information environments that we deal with have site maps, right? right. And, some, and we come to expect that, right? Precisely because of what you're saying. It's like, we need orientation. We need to know what distinctions this environment uh, creates and where I can go to do different things. If I'm in a bank's website, uh, I have this expectation, again, history, right? I have this expectation now after uh, so many years of using bank websites that if I open an account with a new bank and I go online to their information environment, I will have at least two distinctions. There will be a part of the environment where I can read about the bank's products and services and the things they can do for me. And there will be a part of the environment where I can log in and view my stuff my accounts, right? Like there's a public and a private part of that environment. And that's an expectation I bring to it. And I think that you'd be hard pressed to launch a new bank with an information environment that didn't accommodate that, uh, that basic distinction. Mm -hmm. um, we the, the thing is, we have to become more conscious about the, the placemaking aspect of these things that we're doing, the, the, the context that we're creating when we do these things. Because if I if I'm in the public part of the bank's website and I know that, I am going to be less willing to do something like um, give you uh, personal information about myself. Mm -hmm. Where, whereas I'd be willing and, and uh, I would probably even need to do that in the private part of the environment. And it'd be very important for me to know which part of the environment I'm in, right? Like these things create contexts that... Uh, where we expect we can do different things. Yeah. So, so Jorge, this is, this is a, a very interesting in, in sort of philosophical chat, which I appreciate very, very much. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue that trend here a moment and ask you a question. Is it, is it a, a situation that we find ourselves in? Um, again, as your book title suggests, living in information where there are now enough set expectations of common information spaces that we simply shouldn't break the rules on, but also that suggests that in time, something else will come and begin to set new expectations for completely different spaces that we don't have perhaps a physical uh, parallel to. Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, absolutely. My uh, my sense is that, A, we have less baggage than architecture does, so we have more room for exploration. Uh, yes, we do have to... Uh, anything we do, especially if it's, if it's working within a well-trodden space like financial services, um, anything we do is going to sit in relation to what has come before. We can launch a bank that has, for example, no public-facing... Uh, 
no public facing site. Uh, but people are going to think about it when they come to it because they've experienced other banks and and most of them do, right? Sure. So we have we have to be cognizant of the fact that whatever our intervention is, it's going to stand in relation to what's come before it. Yeah. Uh, but I but I would like to uh, I would like to say something here because uh, you talked about this as as an interesting philosophical exploration, which it is. I, I do think that it's a, a a philosophical exploration, but it has very real consequences. Mm-hmm. And and you asked earlier about um, why I wrote the book. And the reason I felt compelled to write the book is that we are in the process of moving more and more of our social interactions to these information environments. And uh, in many cases, we're doing it uh, kind of unwittingly. And quite frankly, we're at great risk of messing up the world. Uh, and, And that sounds alarmist. But uh, but I think that you need only look at what's happened to our civic discourse over the past, I would say, 10 years mm-hmm. to realize that uh, that things are not all all right uh, with what is happening. And I attribute that in great part to the fact that we have moved um, very important conversations, um, frankly, a lot of our civic discourse to environments that have not been designed to accommodate that sort of interaction. They've been designed to uh, basically engage us so that um, so that they can uh, show us advertising and persuade us to buy things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have nothing per se against advertising. I think that advertising is uh, useful when used in the right contexts. Um, and we can talk about what uh, what those are, at least from my perspective. But I think that it's very difficult to have a transparent conversation with someone if the environment is designed to keep you there and to keep you engaged. Uh, I think that that's a very different interaction than what that happens in an environment that is, let's say, more neutral or that has a business model that is more closely aligned with the objectives of the people who are going to be using the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no question. And I think, you know, what you're bringing up with this point too, just not to oversimplify it is, uh, is, is an ethical issue, right? In, Absolutely. In, in the power we wield with the tools and resources and capabilities that we are often here, uh, to mold as designers and, and product makers. Um, and I very much appreciate you bringing up this fact as a point of conversation. So the thing I would ask you, Jorge, is how can we be more mindful about this? How can we make better decisions so that, uh, you know, we are, we are bringing this back to a place that makes more sense. Um, (laughs) and actually, (laughs) and actually promotes a stronger society as opposed to perhaps driving us apart or, 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 or degrading our, our society and civil discourse. Yeah. I think that we need to be very, very mindful of, the information environments that we are participating in. And this is a trend that I think uh, is starting to become more prevalent and will become more prevalent um, over time. Uh, This idea that, um, for example, the major um, mobile operating system vendors are now starting to build tools into the operating systems that allow you to track the usage of your apps and how much time you're spending in them. because. Many of these environments, as I was saying, have been designed to keep you engaged, and we uh, kind of lose ourselves. We they're tapping into very uh, deep, uh, very deep um, behavioral um, quirks of human beings to to keep us there, right? Yeah, and uh, we have to start becoming more mindful of that, of the the way that we're using these things how participating in discussions or, or visiting these environments is affecting us um, uh, emotionally and uh, intellectually. And also, I think that we have to become more literate as to how these things are making money, right? Like this idea that if you are not paying for it, then you're the product. Um, I think that a lot of people assume that that means that your information is being sold. and uh, that's a part of it. Your information is being sold, 
But that's not the expensive stuff. The expensive stuff is your attention. Yes. Uh, you are going to, you and I, and it's not just you, <laughs> this is true of me as well and of everyone listening here, we, um, we basically have a clock that's ticking, you know, and uh, eventually this, uh, this uh, consciousness that is uh, allowing us to have this conversation is, uh, is going to be no more. So our time is limited and we have to become much more aware of where we are spent where we are focusing our attention and mm -hmm. for what ends um, that's not going to be easy because we are uh, like i said we are moving more and more of our interactions to environments that uh, make it very very fun and very pleasant to um, or 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 not just fun and pleasant they also piss us off right like and and that's by design uh, and because pissing off is a way of keeping you engaged, right? So this idea that they're somehow monopolizing your attention, we have to become much, much better stewards of our attention. Uh, and uh, that's, that's why this book exists. Uh, I'm hoping to help um, give folks a lens through which to look at um, the things that they're interacting with to hopefully help them um, be more mindful about uh, what we're doing, you know, uh, when we're when we're using these things, and especially for the folks who design them, you know, we have to uh, start becoming much more ethical. And um, and by ethics, uh, ethics is a a deep and gnarly subject. Uh, right. But um, but I I think that we have to start. I, I'll say it in in what is probably more concrete terms. We have to start becoming a lot smarter about uh, understanding the things that we are enabling, the business models that we are making possible through the things that we design and starting to uh, not just understand them, but also um, uh, take a stand on whether you want to um, be a part of enabling those things or whether you want to be a part of helping people be more um, more mindful of the way that they interact and and make them you know help them be better parents better citizens better co-workers rather right. than just folks who who you're trying to persuade somehow right that's uh this is a huge point that i think you just made there jorge and so this this makes me wonder oh, i have i have a, i have a question um and i guess perhaps a comment the, the comment i have is you know understanding is the first step to then being able to take an effective stand, I believe, right? Um, my question to you is, do you believe that this has been an intentional creation, right? By design, a uh, world of information that we now found ourselves in that is essentially sapping human attention, <laughs> right? Uh, for, for profit and gain. Or do you think that this is something we sort of stumbled in by, by accident because we, because interestingly enough, as humans, we, we kept giving ourselves the things that we wanted by taking <laughs> from others uh, their attention, right? By giving them the things that they wanted. I don't, uh, I don't like to think in terms of, uh, of uh, folks who... A lot of people try to present this subject as though it's a matter of uh, bad actors trying to exploit folks. Right. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think that. Uh, I don't think that we maliciously got into the situation we're in. That was the exact I word I was thinking uh, uh, that escaped me. So thank you for using that. Malicious. Sure thing. Uh, I, I think that what happened, uh, and and Jaren Lanier has written very compellingly about this, by the way. Um, and, and he's someone whose uh, books uh, your audience should check out if if they're uh, interested in this stuff. But uh, basically, uh, early on in the in the web, we made the choice to um, to fund this sort of work through through advertising. Uh, there was this idea that what you wanted to do was get. Um, uh, to grow as quickly as possible and to to lower barriers to entry, which meant basically uh, not having people pay for things and instead uh, showing them ads. And this is a model that comes from, uh, obviously it's not new to the web, it's it's been around for a long time. 
um, <clears throat> there's a, uh, a great book by uh, Tim Wu called The Attention Merchants that traces the history of advertising. But, but early on in the, in the history of the web, we made this, uh, this choice to go down this path of, of having this be the preeminent business model. And I think that that was the, that was the issue, right? Like the, the fact that uh, we now have uh, these uh, enormous companies, which a lot of them are now public uh, and therefore have, um, have legal duties to their shareholders to keep generating revenue. So they're incentivized to, to keep that going, right? And it's very hard when you're growing, um, let's say Facebook, for example, which I think is the, is the biggest one, right? Um, uh, uh, Facebook has to somehow keep growing. Just yesterday, they, um, they announced quarterly results and had um, something like their stock price dropped like 20, 20% or something mm -hmm. overnight, right? Uh, because they're no longer growing at the rate that they used to be growing. And they're not growing in part because they are trying to take steps to ameliorate this problem. So there, there's a great deal of pressure and the incentives are all set against doing the right thing here, you know? And it's not that anyone kind of maliciously designed it that way. It's that we made this kind of devil's bargain to, um, to make things quote unquote free uh, by, uh, by basing it on this business model. Now, I guess, like I said earlier, I don't want to sound like I'm, um, like I'm uh, shooting down all of advertising. I think that some environments um, are a better fit for advertising than others. And the, the, the preeminent example for me is Google. Uh, Google is not a place that I go to to hang out. Google is a place that I go to to find things and leave. Mm -hmm. And if the thing that is being advertised to me is what I'm looking for, they've done me a service, right? They're not, it's not designed to keep me there. It's designed to uh, get me to go to places. And therefore, that is better aligned with my needs, my expectations, my um, the value that I derive from the environment, right? So it's yeah. so I don't think it's a black and white thing. I don't think that advertising is all bad. I just think that we've applied it uh, much too broadly to too many things. And it's especially pernicious when the things that we're trying to do in the environment is inform ourselves, interact with our fellow citizens, right? Then we get into real trouble because the uh, the environments, an environment that is designed to keep you there is going to start doing all sorts of things that, um, that will influence that. For example, and this is not in any way uh, news to anyone, I think, but this idea that uh, it creates filter bubbles uh, or opinion bubbles where all of a sudden all the things you see are from people who hold your same perspective right. or a very similar perspective. That's by design to keep you engaged, right? Like that does not promote any kind of uh, social wheel, you know, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's pernicious. It polarizes people, right? And and it's uh, and it's a, a matter of how the environment where the conversations is happening, uh, the where the conversations are happening, uh, how it's been designed and towards what ends, right? Right. Well, you know, if the engine that uh, drives the growth and success of that thing is again, I'm stealing some of your language in, in the description of your book, open to the highest bidder, that inherently means uh, we are promoting and accepting behavior that uh, you can buy the attention of people. And uh, this is a very, very prickly problem we're dealing with because I actually share your opinion. I don't, I don't think advertising is inherently bad, right? Uh, a lot of people like to believe they don't like to be advertised or marketed to, but the reality of it is um, some of the best things in their life, uh, some, perhaps some of the things they may even hold most dear, uh, would have never come to their attention had it not been for those activities, right? Right. So, so I, don't, I don't think it's inherently bad, uh, but, but I could not agree more with the way you're describing this. And again, this... Um, as somebody like John Coco might put, a wicked problem. Yeah, this is it's, it's it's a societal, a global societal problem. Like like you said, where it's creating these echo chambers. That's only the the machine is feeding you the things that you have expressed you want to see and hear. Um, so it's not actually progressing you as an individual or us as a society. Uh, and it's all simply because we're accepting the uh, profit for that behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, it, it's uh, it is a wicked problem, and and we have to 
um, grow up basically and and uh, accept responsibility as designers for the fact that the things that we are dealing with are complex and we are and we are creating very um, we are making very interventions that have nuances and complexity, right? And we have to figure out how we're going to do it. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in one of the Star Wars movies, um, in one of the prequels, which uh, <laughs> I, I don't oh, know. Oh, it's dangerous it. territory, Jorge. I know, I know. <laughs> I, 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 and, here you and here we thought I wasn't going to swear, right? Uh, <laughs> <but> it, <laughs> if, if there's anything that's going to cause Jorge to swear, it's the prequel yeah. movies of Star Wars. No, but, th but there's a line there that, uh, that, uh, that uh, frequently comes to mind, right? And it's, uh, I think it's uttered by Obi-Wan Kenobi. He says, uh, only a Sith uh, thinks in absolutes, I mm -hmm. think is the, mm -hmm. is the phrase, right? Like, we, we have to um, struggle, uh, because it is a struggle, because everything around us is pushing us in the opposite direction. But we have to struggle to understand that things are not black and white. Things are not uh, a, a yes or no. There are levels of gray. There are nuances to things. And... Um, and uh, and understand that the the environments that we are designing need to accommodate for those. Yeah. And and uh, the 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 issue or one of the issues I have with the advertising business model when dealing with things like civic uh, discussions is that um, what we want as a society, what we want as a people who have some kind of shared uh, goal, if and the shared goal can be as simple as we got to live together because we're neighbors, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have to occupy the same space. Uh, if we are to function as a people, we have to find ways of uh, seeing past our differences so that we can work together, so that we can somehow come to middle ground. We're not going, we're not going to be you know, perfectly aligned, but we have to find ways of coming to middle ground. And that requires that we start looking for the things that we share in common, right? The things yeah. that make us similar. And my concern with advertising uh, as a model for these things is that advertising is pushing us in the opposite direction. It's, it's looking to slice us up into ever narrower demographics yes. so that it can, um, because, because I'm, a more valuable, um, I'm a more valuable audience, the more precise you can narrow me exactly. down. Exactly, you're more valuable, the more absolute you can be. The more you take a side and 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 choose black or white, uh, and and if you can keep me there, right? Like if if you polarize me and get me really pissed off, I'm going to be spending a lot of time in your environment because that's where I'm going to get the hit of reinforcement that I need to uh, to all of a sudden like construct this worldview, right? Exactly. Um, I think that that's pernicious, and I think it's leading us down a very dangerous path. And we, as designers, uh, have a role in helping uh, correct for this, I think. I would agree with you. I, uh, I, and I will go so far as to say I don't think I know. Um, I, I, I have such a, a great appreciation for the fact of you calling it out, this, this, these, these shades of gray that we live in. And you have nailed it with describing the world that we live in right now. This is everybody believes that you have to choose a side almost in anything that we have and i've actually had conversations very recently with uh with people most near and dear to me where i've described this as it's like watching sports teams you love your sports team whether they suck whether they're terrible people right whether they've they've won the world championship of whatever it is and you fight for them and you defend for them. And you can't really say why. You don't get anything out of it personally. But there's something inherently that has given you a sense of pride or a sense of uh, place or meaning that you have to fight for that. And the reality of it is when you apply that to, as you've said, Jorge, like civic discourse and living in the same space as other people, there are, the world does not work that way. There are too many shades of gray. People do not operate under the conditions of black and white. It doesn't happen. And those that do, they're too polarized. And traditionally, in history, because we were talking about that, have been ostracized as too extreme one way or the other, right? Yep. And now, now we're reinforcing that and we're incentivizing for it, right? 
Exactly that's right. The, and that's the challenge. The the, the 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 sports team thing is a perfect um I think it's a perfect analogy because sports is zero sum, right? Like when you're when you're backing a team, you want your team to win. Mm -hmm. For your team to win, the other team must lose. Exactly. Like that's that's the whole point. There's a there's a book I love uh called uh, Finite and Infinite Games by James Cars. Um another one worth checking out uh if, if if any of the stuff we're talking about interests you. But um, but Karras opens his book by uh, making a distinction between what he calls finite and infinite games. And he says, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he says, finite games are games that we play with the, with the object of winning. Mm -hmm. And infinite games are games we play with the object of keeping the game going. Yeah. Right? And uh, I think that we have to, this, this is not an option, we have to, transcend this zero-sum thinking because ultimately what we're doing is we are playing a game but it's not a game about beating those other people it's a game about how can we keep going you know i, I have kids uh, i want my kids to have kids and i want their kids to have kids and i want them all to be happy healthy people mm -hmm. and and uh that requires that we acknowledge that there is a, a long-term incentive for us to make things better. And we need to come to uh, an understanding of how to work together. This, this zero-sum thinking literally is going to kill us. So um, we need to transcend this. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And this is a huge point for anybody who's listening and has definitely made it this far towards the end of our episode. Take note of what we are discussing here. This is a big deal this game of life and and this thing we're doing in design to support people's lives because that's exactly what we're doing this is not a win or lose thing this is uh this is an infinite game this is a how do we all do this together better game i right. I, I i i can't tell you how much i appreciate that point you've just made jorge and uh on that note <laughs> i have to be the unfortunate uh uh caller of the time you know, for whom the bell tolls here uh that we're that we're coming up on our time with you i am quite sure we can spend several more hours discussing these points um but unfortunately we don't have the time and i want to be respectful of that for you so the bar's closing right <laughs> the bar's closing <laughs> exactly and that is that is a zero sum game we either make that or we don't that's right um so I'm just kind of curious, you know, if uh, let's say I had a case of temporary amnesia and I forgot everything we discussed here today, what was, what's the one salient point, the one, the one big takeaway you think folks should have of everything we discussed? Think about how much time you're spending um, interacting with other people and with organizations through software in information environments mm -hmm. and be mindful of why you're doing it and who's benefiting from you doing it and, and in what ways. And if you're a designer, know that you can influence that and make the world better through your work. You don't have to despair at how things are. You have to just make things better. And there are ways of doing it. And um, I've written a book that hopefully can help you um, do that. It's called Living in Information. And um, you can find it at livinginformation.com. And um, I would love to hear what you think about it. And I'll probably hear what you think about it through information environments, because that's <laughs> how we communicate today. Nice way to tie that off there, Jorge. Uh, word up to that for sure. Take it to the bank. Think about what you're doing. You can have a positive impact. Choose to have a positive impact. Um, Jorge, is there anything else you want to share with folks listening today? that we haven't discussed no just to say that it's been a pleasure talking with you and i'm just hoping that everyone who listens to this uh, you know moves towards becoming more conscious and more aware of of who they are and what they're doing and uh, wishing you all the best i love it if we can all be one percent better tomorrow imagine the impact that would have on the world absolutely i love it all right, everybody. Jorge, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. This has been a wonderful chat. Thank you, Zach. It's been a pleasure. Okay, everybody. We will see you next time.
If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to the Aurelius Podcast, the show where we talk with brilliant minds about user research, UX design, and building great products that meet the needs of real people and what you learned about them. Aurelius is a user research and insights tool for design and product teams. Aurelius helps you add, tag, organize, search, and share all of your user research notes and customer feedback insights to figure out what you learned faster and easier than ever before so you can make awesome designs, products, and features. Check us out for a free trial at AureliusLab.com. That is A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Or find us on Twitter at Aurelius. We'll see you next time.